gender and racial equity gaps exist in economics and other STEM fields. In this episode, we discuss research on strategies to reduce these inequities. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Kane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer, and features guests doing important research and advocacy work to make higher education more inclusive and supportive of all learners. Our guest today is Tisha Emerson. Tisha is the chair of the economics department and the James E. and Constance Paul Distinguished Professor at East Carolina University and is the incoming chair of the American Economic Association's Committee on Economic Education. Welcome, Tisha. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Very happy to be talking to you. And our teas today are, Tisha, are you drinking any tea? Yes, my favorite tea I found a couple years ago. It's the Golden Moon brand of Tippy Earl Grey. That sounds nice. It's delicious. I have Harvest Memories today. I don't remember that one. Well, it is from my little favorite tea shop in Canandaigua, New York, and it's Autumn Flavors. Autumn Flavor. Do autumn they have flavors. like leaves dumped in there? I mean, it almost looked like that, but... <laughs> okay. Well, that's one way of getting rid of all those leaves that have been falling. And I have English breakfast tea today. So we've invited you here today to talk about some of the research you've done and also your new role and your past role with the AEA's Committee on Economic Education. One of the things that we've observed is that there's some significant equity gaps in economics and in STEM disciplines in general in terms of race and gender. And in one of the studies that you've done with this in a 2023 paper in the Southern Economic Journal, you and Kimberly McGoldrick examined retake behavior for students who were not successful in their initial attempt at completing an introductory microeconomics class. Could you give us just a general overview of this study? First, let me say that this started a long time ago. We got access to this great data, the midfield data set that was actually originally funded by the NSF to study the gap in engineering education, but it's student transcript data. So we said, well, you could use that for economics too. And we have. And so this particular study looks at almost 180,000 students who take principles of microeconomics for the first time. And what we ultimately wanted to do is to think about the likelihood of success and actually more so failure, because a lot of papers already look at success. And they stop there because you have too small of a sample, fortunately, of the failures to continue on to look at them. But when you start with 180,000, you have enough to continue. So we find, as many others do, that, of course, aptitude matters, but that, unfortunately, females tend to be much more likely to be unsuccessful in their principles of microeconomics class, as are underrepresented minorities or URMs. And then we follow those students and we say, okay, so if you were, in fact, unsuccessful, and we define that as a grade of a D or an F, so grades that wouldn't really let you continue in your study of economics, or you withdraw. And we say, if you're in that category, what do those students tend to do? Or first of all, for those students that are unsuccessful, what helps predict that? So given that you are in the unsuccessful category, what is more likely to cause that? 
And we saw that students who were carrying more concurrent credit hours were more likely to withdraw, which makes sense because if you have constraints that lead you to want to be full time, if you start with 12 hours and the course is not going well, any of them, and you were to drop, then you would not be full time anymore. And so it gives them sort of this flexibility. They have more concurrent credit hours. But we found that students who got D or Fs, given that they were unsuccessful, they tended to have taken more related courses. So things like accounting, financial accounting in particular, calculus, and macro principles. And so we didn't actually see a lot of gender or racial differences there. But then those students who were unsuccessful, D, F, or W, on retake decisions, we found that women were much less likely to retake if they were unsuccessful. But we did find that women who were of higher aptitude, who were unsuccessful initially, they were more likely to retake. So that was a positive. And we did find that underrepresented minorities were more likely to retake the course, but then more likely to be unsuccessful again on their second attempt. So there's some good news, but also a lot of not so good news. So you were able to follow students over time. How long a time period was there in the data set that you were analyzing? We had over 20 year period of data, but that doesn't mean we followed any particular student for that full length of time. Once we saw that they were unsuccessful, we made sure that they had at least one more semester at the institution. So they did, in fact, have a chance to choose to retake the course or not. And then we gave them three years post their initial unsuccessful attempt. And if they didn't retake it in that period, then we said they chose not to retake. In a 2019 study in the Journal of Economic Education, you and Kimmery McGoldrick used the same data set to examine the decision to switch into and out of the economic major. In this study, you find that very few students selected economics as a major when entering college and that 83% of economics majors actually selected the major after taking their first economics course. What did you find in terms of the gender and racial composition of those that selected the economic major? So what we found was that for the few students who started out as economics majors, so going into their principals class, they already had said they were majoring in economics. We found that females were as likely to persist or not. That's good. And we found something similar for underrepresented minorities. That is the females and URM students who went into the principal's class planning to major in economics. They were as likely to persist as not. What happened to those students who were not majoring in economics? Well, unfortunately, females were not as likely to persist and decide to major in economics. There was a larger proportion of females who opted to remain in their original major. So they come into the principal's class, they have some major other than economics. They were much more likely to stay in their other major and not switch to economics. Men were considerably more likely to switch on average than females were. But on a more positive note, we did find that students from traditionally underrepresented racial and ethnic minorities and Asian students were more likely to switch to economics. And one thing we should note, and you mentioned this in your study, is that because this data set was focused on engineering, the schools in the sample have relatively large engineering programs. And some students switched to economics because economics was perceived as being easier than their original major. So some of this may not apply as broadly to liberal arts institutions that do not have engineering programs. That's possibly true. 
And in fact, business majors were even more likely to switch to econ. So it was about 10% of those switching in were switching from engineering and 27% were switching from business. So at the liberal arts schools, to the extent that they don't have business or engineering, there wouldn't be that source of majors coming in. Both of these studies are really interesting. But how do we think about some strategies to create a more inclusive environment in economics and STEM classes? So what do these studies tell us? What should we be doing? Well, so I don't know that they tell us what we should be doing. They tell us that what we're doing is not really working. Fair. Which is unfortunate because that's what we've been doing for a really long time. And we've been really unsuccessful at attracting women and underrepresented minorities. So there's a new sort of strain in the literature that's really trying to address some of this. And there's a study, for example, by Porter and Sarah, and that was published in 2020. They did a randomized control trial at Southern Methodist University, where they just by happenstance picked a couple very charismatic female alums, and they randomly selected which principal's classes they would speak to. And this was just like a 15 or 20 minute exposure where they talked about majoring in economics and how that helped them in their career. And they found that this significantly increased the number of women from those courses who decided to major in economics and additionally, not necessarily just major, but take more economics courses. I thought it was really fascinating that there was no effect on men in those treated classes. It was just the women. So that suggests possibly that there's some room for role models. Other work that looks at role models from other directions, like some of my own work with Kimmery and John Siegfried didn't find any evidence that supports the idea of role models. So I think still mixed and the exact sort of interaction that students may or may not have with these people, I think is going to be important. You've done a number of studies on these types of issues, and one of them was looking at the effect of classroom experiments. Could you talk a little bit about what types of classroom experiments have you looked at and what's the impact of those on students? Sure. I talk about that a lot because I really love the classroom experiments. I think that they're a great pedagogical technique. And so since your audience is more general, maybe I'll explain just what we mean by classroom experiments. And that's basically the idea that we're going to, in some cases, simulate markets or other decision environments for the students that will mirror the types of environments that we're talking about in class. So for example, if we're talking about a market, then we will have students participate in an experiment where some are buyers and some are sellers, and they negotiate and trade. In my classes, we always do the experiment first. I don't talk about any of the concepts. And then we collect the data as we're going through the experiment on the decisions that they're making, prices, quantities that are traded. Then I'm able to talk to the students about, well, look, this is what actually happened. This is your actual data that you generated. And now let's talk about the theory. And this is what the theory would predict the outcome to be. And they can see how well they match up and they are able to discuss in class, this is why I chose to behave in this way. And they see how it fits in to the economic theories. And I did a study back in 2001, which was published in 04 in the Southern Economic Journal, where we were looking just at the effect of experiments and we looked to see if there was a differential gender effect. And in fact, there was. So you often see that women underperform men in these principles classes. 
But what the experiment did is it closed that gender performance gap. So it raised sort of everybody's performance, but it raised the females disproportionately so that they were closer to the same outcome as the men if they were in a classroom with experiment. So I do think that there is definitely room through pedagogy to improve women's outcomes and make them more attracted to economics, but also make economics more attractive to them. There's a large literature that suggests that women are much more grade sensitive than our men. Various people have gone about showing this in different ways. And if you can bring up their performance so that it's on par with men, and it's not really even that comparison, but you're bringing up the female's performance, then they're getting better grades and they're going to be less likely to want to leave the study of economics. And we'll throw in a reference to an earlier podcast we did with Peter Arcidiacano, who had looked at that very impact in STEM fields in terms of the decisions of people to move from one major to another. And in particular, in that study, they found that women did better on many of the tests, but still left because the grades were relatively lower than in other classes. So one issue I think might be worth addressing is the issue of grade differentials, that if we're going to continue to assign grades that are lower than most other departments, there's a good chance we're going to lose majors in general, but disproportionately more female majors based on what the research literature tells us. There's this really cool study, McEwen, Rogers, and Wirapana. 2021, they're at Wellesley. And so it's all females, but they were trying to address grade inflation. And what that meant was, of course, there are some disciplines that have higher grades. They had to bring their average grades down and economics was treated in the opposite direction. And that it actually drew more students into these harder grading disciplines like economics and the other STEM fields. And so, yeah, that's certainly an issue. I don't think we're going to across the board be trying to treat grade inflation. I don't think this is published yet, but I was reading another study out of Wellesley where they were allowing students, I think it was maybe for their general ed classes, to take them all pass fail. And again, you saw students flowing into these harder grading disciplines. And I know a number of schools during a pandemic made all the first year classes pass fail, which is a good way of letting students get into a discipline without worrying so much about the grades so they can explore things without worrying about the impact on their GPAs. That might be another useful strategy. Yes, I agree. And then this is really anecdotal, but I've heard other people observe the same thing, that women, they'll be in your principal's class and they're doing well, but maybe they're going to get a B plus. And they say, oh, either I'm not going to take another economics class or I've even had students withdraw at that point. And I'm like, but you're getting a B plus. I don't understand. But they're so sensitive to grades. And then there will be male students who are getting a C barely. And they'll say, I'm going to major in economics. And I say, okay, are you sure? It's hard to understand sometimes. It's interesting to think about withdrawal policies that have really kind of loosened up due to COVID. So our institution changed the policy more recently so that students can withdraw through the last day of classes without documentation. And so students who are doing really poorly might take that option. But as you're discussing students with higher grades withdrawing, that sounds really concerning that policies like that could be kind of counterintuitive or really have some other negative impacts classes all cost money and <laughs> there's financial impacts to withdrawing. 
it's hard to really predict how this is all going to play out. And I have to say, I've never heard of such a generous withdrawal policy. At my previous institution, I think they could withdraw up to sort of two weeks out and not even have a W necessarily on their transcript. So this all seems like a lot. There's a lot of moving parts. But on the positive side, so let me just say, first of all, part of me feels like it's a little bit too generous. But part of me also thinks back to the work that Kimri and I did. And if you don't have that DRF that you have to overcome, it's a lot easier to persist, not just in your major, but towards graduation, whether you switch majors or stay. And part of me feels like that's helpful to the student. So in some ways, I like a generous withdrawal policy. I definitely want students to know what the withdrawal policy is, what the deadlines are, so that they can make a good decision. Yeah, the only concern I have with the policy is that it can lead to students making slow progress towards a degree and they could run out of funding before they complete their degrees. But on the other hand, it does provide a bit of a safety net for students who are adjusting. And as our student body has become more diverse and we have more first-gen students and we have more students coming from schools that did not prepare people particularly well for a college environment, it provides a safety net which has allowed students to take some chances early on and not be harmed. And I've seen some students struggle in their first year or so, drop classes and come back and be very successful when before they might have been deterred from further study in the discipline. I agree. I can see that. So definitely one of the things that I'm always thinking about when students are talking about withdrawing is making sure that they know all of the ramifications. So what does it do to your GPA? What does it look like on a transcript? What are the financial implications so they can make a well-informed decision? And depending on who they're talking to, they're not necessarily always getting all of the information. And that can be problematic, too. Yes. So I think that points us to the issue of how important advising is so that there are well-informed advisors and that students have access to them, not just at the end when it's time to register for next semester, but they have a relationship with their advisor and feel that they can go in and ask those questions. Because as John said, a lot of those students can't go to their parents. They're first gen. Their parents don't have advice for them. And even if your parents went to college, they don't necessarily know all of the rules and regulations of the institution that you're at. It's really hard, I think, for students to have all the information that's necessary. I've had trouble keeping up to all the changing information over the last few years in terms of those requirements. You've done some work with cooperative learning. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So that really came out of the fact that I had done a lot of efficacy work around classroom experiments. And Kimri and I are really good friends. She is a cooperative learning expert. So I should say that she is the expert on CL. And she wanted to do an efficacy study, so we decided to team up and do that. So what we did is, unlike a lot of some of the other work in efficacy, is that a lot of the work is comparing lecture, so you don't do anything, to this active learning technique. And with cooperative learning, the students are working on exercises. And when we talked about it, we said, you know, it's really not fair and not even interesting to compare a student who's in a lecture-based class where they don't get to see any of these problems to students in a cooperative learning class that are working on these problems in class, in teams. So we thought a lot about the cooperative learning approach and we're trying to isolate 
what we thought could be the mechanism that might be driving different outcomes. And what we decided was we were going to compare the active team-based learning to individual learning, working on problems. So in our control, the students were exposed to the same problems. They had the same amount of time in class to work the problems as in the treatment, which was the cooperative learning. It's just that in the treatment, they were working in teams in this think-pair-share framework. And we didn't find a significant difference. So at the end, we said that the cooperative component didn't seem to be driving any difference. Although there are other people who've done work comparing cooperative learning to lecture-based, and they did find significant positive effects from cooperative learning. One type of thing that I've done that seems to have been fairly successful is using clicker questions. Following the methodology of Eric Mazur, students are given a challenging question where typically half or so of them will get it right the first time when they're asked individually, but then they get to talk it over with the people around them, preferably someone with a different answer. They get to debate and argue it. And I normally see between a 10 and 20 percentage point increase in the correct answer. And the really absurd answers tend to disappear down to about nothing. So that's not a very formal study, but that second stage of that process where students are engaged in some peer instruction seems to have had a pretty significant impact. And I point that out to students that when they talk to each other about it and explain it to each other, they do much better than when they're working on their own. And I encourage them to try doing that outside of class to work with other students. Because there are a variety of studies. I haven't seen too many in economics, but there are quite a few studies that find that that type of peer instruction, either in the classroom or outside, can be fairly effective. Yeah. So I've observed that too. I haven't used clicker questions, but just going in and observing my colleagues when they teach and they're using clicker questions. And I have to say, I'm stunned because I don't know how the right answer bubbles up as opposed to the person who had the wrong answer convincing the other of the wrong answer. I don't know how that doesn't happen. It's like magic to me almost. So part of me wants to think a bit more about what is the mechanism and how is that working? That would be really cool to do a study on that. One of the things that's always curious to me about that particular dynamic is sometimes students discover as they try to explain something to someone else that they really don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) They realize, huh, I can't actually explain this concept, so maybe I'm the one that's not correct. Maybe that is what's happening because everyone always says you have to really know your stuff to teach it. And so if you are trying to explain it to your partner, you do have to know the material. And when they're raising objections and you don't have a counter argument, that can help break down your misconceptions because getting rid of those incorrect perceptions can be as important as trying to build new ones. Yes, I could see that. And maybe the people who are initially giving the wrong answer are just guessing. So maybe they're not trying to explain and convince their partner of their answers. I guess, I don't know. So maybe it's not magic. (laughs) Feels like magic. It does. And it works. When I see it happen, it does seem like magic. In general, I think that active learning is helpful because I think that women are going to be more interested when you show them the applications and that when you have active learning, there's some community building that happens. So you're illustrating relevance, you're building this community, giving them a sense of belonging in the classroom, which is a lot of what I think actually happens with the experiments. And then actually also with the experiments, they're kind of discovering some of the theory for themselves 
which is a growth mindset. And there is research that shows that if you can show relevance, belonging, and growth mindset and develop these in your classroom, that students are going to do better, but that it also is more appealing to females and underrepresented minorities. There's lots of things for all of us to think about, even if we're not necessarily in economics classrooms. It's definitely good food for thought. Switching gears a little bit, can you tell us a little bit about your work on the Committee on Economic Education? So I'm not officially on it at the moment. I'm the incoming chair, but I have served on it in the past, and I've been shadowing Kim Marie McGoldrick, who is the current chair for the last year. So the committee is doing a lot of really great work, I think. When I first served on the committee, we basically just organized sessions for the American Economic Association meetings. And when I say just, I don't mean just compared to now, it's just, but we have, I think, seven sessions that we organize for the meetings every January. But while I was first on the committee, then chair Mike Watts, who was at Purdue, he said, I have an idea, we should have a conference. So an all economic education conference and we started it while he was chair, and it's CTREE, so the Conference on Teaching and Research in Economic Education. So the committee is in charge of that. It's every end of May, beginning of June, depending how the calendar falls. So our next CTREE will be in Atlanta, not that far. It's on the East Coast. Maybe you can join us. And it will be May 29th through the 31st of 2024. We have many other things, though. We also are overseeing an educate program, which is professional development for college faculty, and that includes two-year college faculty in course design, different active learning pedagogies, and we talk about how to bring diversity and inclusion into the classroom. Kim Marie actually started this this year. We have a newsletter called Econ Ed News, and that features different pedagogies. It features the winner of the AEA's Distinguished Economic Educator Award, which the committee also oversees, and some centers that we have for econ ed across the country. Just a lot of information that's in there. We have two issues a year, so we've had our first two, and our next one will come out in March of 24. So just a lot of great work, I think, that the committee is doing. And I think really, thanks to Mike, who started us with our own conference, and then Sam Allgood succeeded Mike and added. And then Kimri is an overachiever and she added a lot more in her six years as the chair. And going back earlier, early surveys of economic instruction suggested that economists were using much more chalk and talk than many other disciplines were using. So these efforts have been fairly important in shifting people away from that. It's a somewhat overdue change, but it's nice to see that happening. And I would love to go to C-Tree, but there's two barriers that I've run into. One is we run a series of workshops here right around the same time. And the other is I teach at Duke in the summers. So I either am doing workshops here or I am in North Carolina teaching econometrics down there. So I haven't been able to get there. I would love to go to a C-Tree meeting. I think I would have no clue what's going on if I went. <laughs> oh, I think you would. I think you would. I think you'd have a nice time. Everyone there is just so lovely and very engaged in teaching and just really cares about the enterprise. It's nice to see education groups out of these professional organizations to really formulate communities of practice around teaching. Yes, I agree. I think economics, unfortunately, was late to the game, but we're increasingly appreciating the importance. 
and the importance not just of focusing on four-year colleges, but two-year colleges, sort of going back to the point of diversity and the lack thereof in the discipline, the students in four-year colleges that I've worked with, I've predominantly still been very much what economists already look like. And if we really want to improve the diversity in economics, I think we need to reach down to the high schools, to the two-year colleges, and make economics more interesting and accessible. We always wrap up by asking, what's next? There's lots of things. I guess with regard to the committee, I'm hoping to just kind of not start anything new in my first term and keep everything running as well as Kimry has it now. But then for my own research, I am really interested now in looking at comparing pedagogies. So it's been a lot of efficacy work looking at a particular pedagogy compared to sort of the standard chalk and talk. But now, how do they compare to each other? Is there a better pedagogy? for students. And my first study, and I have the data, so I just have to start working on it, will compare experiments to cooperative learning. And I told Kimry, if experiments lose, then she won't hear any more about this. I won't write it up. I won't talk about it because I don't want to say that experiments lose. But no, I mean, seriously, that's the next thing that's first on the agenda. But also, I have a deep interest in diversity questions. Kimry and I, with Scott Zimikin, have a paper looking at HBCUs compared to PWIs and the study of economics there. And that was inspired by some work that showed that HBCUs contributed disproportionately to the STEM pipeline. And since economics is part of STEM, we thought, well, that should be true for economics as well. So we did some work in that area and we show that there are some positive contributions from HBCUs to the economics pipeline. But I think there's a lot more to do there. So I would like to dig down in that. I've heard a lot of people at HBCUs talk about secret sauce, and I want to learn what that is. And not just at HBCUs, but look at MSIs as well, more generally. And I do want to look at some questions at two-year colleges. So that's for the next five to 10 years. Say You're going to be busy. (laughs) For those who aren't familiar with the terms, PWIs are predominantly white institutions and MSIs are minority-serving institutions. That's correct. Those terms are becoming more and more common, but just to make sure all of our listeners are familiar. Okay, well, thank you. It's great talking to you and it's nice meeting you. And we will keep trying to get Kim Marie McAldrick on the podcast. I've been asking her for about four years. She's been a little resistant, but we'll see if we can get her here in the future. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I hope you have a good afternoon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Editing assistance by Ganesh.